government quarantine itself. It wasn't fun, but it was like bad summer camp. I'm Alex Tat, and you're listening to Abroad, a lifestyle and culture podcast for those who choose a life abroad or for those curious about the international life. Today, we are joined by Mariana Daniels, an elementary school teacher currently based in Vietnam. We talk about her transition from Madison, Wisconsin, to French Canada, to Saigon, how she immerses herself in the community there, and the changes she has seen in the rapidly developing Southeast Asian country. Also, we unpacked a BBC report of Vietnam's success in managing COVID-19 and Mariana's own personal experience with state-mandated quarantine. Welcome to Abroad. Uh, we have Mariana today. Uh, Mariana, this is the first episode that we're recording for the show. So thank you so much for coming in and tuning in. How do you feel about being the first person to do this show with me? Well, I never thought I would actually end up on a podcast, so it's pretty exciting. Um, I listen to a lot of them, so it's fun to be on one. Thanks for having me. Mariana, I think the first time I ran into you, I don't quite remember. Um, we were probably in some smoky bar in Vietnam, and you know how those things kind of go. Your your memory is a little bit foggy. So for the sake of this show, let's let's do a quick little introduction. I know you are a an elementary school teacher. Um, you're from Madison, Wisconsin, right? And you've been in Vietnam for, I'm going to guess, six years? Uh, it'll be 10 in October. 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I can't even imagine... That's going to be very exciting to talk to you about. Um, one of the big things I want to talk to you about are the changes that you've seen over time in Vietnam. Why don't you give us a little spiel? Tell us who you are, um, where you're from, what your background's like. Um, yeah, so I um, originally am from Wisconsin. Like you said, I had a very normal Midwestern American childhood there. And I just always wanted to live abroad. So uh, when I was about 16, I moved to Italy for a year on exchange. Um, I lived with an Italian family there. And then by the time I got back, uh, I did one more year back in the States to finish out high school, and I was ready to go again. So um, I moved to Quebec, to Montreal um, okay. for university. Sure. And, then, and I just want to take a pause yeah. there, if you don't mind. Let, let's... Uh, let's focus on that Italy thing because that was one thing I didn't really know um, until I was doing a little bit of research and you brought it up. But you said you were in Italy in, when you were 16. Uh, what exactly were you doing there? What were you studying? Um, I was going to a normal Italian uh, high school, which was interesting because I spoke no Italian when I got there. Um, mm -hmm. There's In Italy, they separate uh, high schools based on what skills you're learning or what tracks that you want to go into. So the two that would send someone to university are either uh, uh, Liceo Classico or uh, Liceo Scientifico. And I ended up mm. at a Scientifico where you study a lot more maths and sciences. Whereas the Classico, you would end up studying a lot of Latin, ancient Greek, other languages, um, a lot of literature. 
And that was just for one year? Yeah, one school year. Yeah. Awesome. That was one thing that I never really got a chance to do. Um, You know, my family didn't have that much money growing up. So like doing something like that, I know my high school had a program for Ireland and it killed me that I couldn't do it just to study English over the summer for Ireland or in Ireland and get a full credit for it. But I did get a chance to go to Italy later on when I was 20 years old. So um, I was in Siena for the summer. Um, I'm not, where, did, where did you stay? Uh, I ended up in Udine, which is a small city in between Trieste and Venice. Okay. Well, then you finish up high school, like you said. So let's get to that point. You made your transition over to French Canada. Why French Canada? Well, I guess my my mom actually suggested it. Um, she had had a friend um, who went there when she was in uh, looking at universities, and um, she knew I wanted to not be in the U.S. So she suggested we take a look at it, and um, we ended up driving up to Montreal the summer that I was looking at universities. And after I got to Montreal, I was like, "This is it." I, I don't even need to look anywhere else. Um, I hope I get in because I'm not going to be happy anywhere else. <laughs> so the transition, what was that like for you? It, I guess I was already used to it because I had moved to Italy without speaking any Italian. And there I actually learned it quite quickly. I had to. Um, I was living in life with a family, going to school. I had to learn Italian. Whereas in Montreal, I was living in, uh, I was going to an English speaking university. I was living in kind of the section of the city that's more English speaking. And I have to say, uh, Montreal is not the easiest place in the world to learn French because everyone is bilingual. If you speak to them in bad French, they're going to go, hey, I speak English please, can we speak English? Um, But for me, you do have to learn, obviously, signs are in French, menus are in French. You're better off um, if you at least learn some French. Um, Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I do think I didn't participate as much in the French-speaking world of Montreal Whereas in um, other cities in Quebec, like Quebec City, I think people appreciate more when you make even a poor effort to speak French. Life in Montreal, going to school there, how did that, how was that impactful for you? Like, how, how did that change you? What kind of lasting impressions did you get from that? Um, I would say probably the best part about and I think you would get this experience going to um, an educational institute institution anywhere else in the world outside of your home country is that most, um, most education, whether we like it or not, especially in the U.S., but I think most countries, it tends to focus more on the country that it's in. So American education focuses a lot on the US in things like history, but also politics, economics, all of that. So I would say that the best part about going to university abroad was that I did get different 
perspectives and experiences. Um, I did get to look at things from a Canadian perspective um, or a French Canadian perspective, which was really interesting and just, I think, broadens your, your vision in education a bit. So I really appreciated that. Um, also for me, just like I said, I, I love Montreal. It's probably my favorite city in the world. It's a hard choice, but I absolutely adore the city. So I just felt very lucky that I got to live there for four years. Right. And the winter, winter transition wasn't too much of a difference for you. It's pretty brutal in Montreal. <laughs> uh, the winds, <laughs> the winds were pretty intense. Um, yeah. Wisconsin gets cold, but Montreal is kind of on a different level. I had to yeah. buy the like mini mountain climber, like crampons that you put over your boots because I lived on a hill and otherwise oh, yeah. I'd just slide down the hill. But <laughs> um, it was worth it. Gotcha. Somehow or other, it's worth it. <laughs> now you went to McGill. Did you do your, your, and you're a licensed teacher. Did you do your bachelor's of education there? In Canada, the in order to become a teacher is a little bit different. So, walk me through your your flow in becoming an international school teacher from there. Um, so, actually, when I was in university, I never imagined that I was going to be a teacher. I actually studied international development, which is mm -hmm. um, it's based in economics, but it has a lot of history, anthropology. Um, I thought I was going to work for an NGO or um, the USAID, our development um, department in the United States or the UN or something, um, but it just didn't turn out that way. Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in life after um, I graduated university and I kind of just booked a one-way plane ticket to Vietnam. And that's where I figured out that I wanted to be a teacher. Okay. Very similar to, to my experience there. I actually want to be a lawyer. Just kind of, you know, push my mom's expectations back. She was always like, well, why don't, why don't you become a doctor? Why don't you become a professor? Um, why are you studying history and English? Like, what are you going to do with those degrees? And so I kind of said like, well, I'll, maybe I'll do law school, I'll do the LSAT. And it's just kind of trying to push her back and back further and further from like this overbearing tiger mom experience. But uh, yeah, it, it, Vietnam was where I kind of found my passion for teaching and try to get licensed or I did get licensed there. So let's get on to Vietnam then. You you took a one-way flight to Vietnam. What, what led you to that decision from Montreal, French Canada to Vietnam? <laughs> I... I always thought I was going to end up in Latin America. Um, I speak Spanish and I was always fascinated with it culturally. And I spent six months in Ecuador studying abroad in university and I loved it. Um, and it's fantastic. Um, I, I loved everywhere I went in Latin America, um, but it does have its issues, um, especially with security. Um, I went to a Thai friend's wedding in Thailand my last year of university. And it kind of just was a wow moment for me. I hadn't really thought about Southeast Asia before. Sure. And I realized that it had a lot of the things that I loved about 
living in Latin America and in developing countries, but was much safer. Mm-hmm. So I kind of picked Vietnam. I, w- I guess I was like, it's the place I love the food the most. So, um, so I just, I, I bought a one-way plane ticket there. Uh, I'd never been, uh, I didn't know anyone and I didn't have a job, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, everyone, my family and friends thought I was pretty crazy at the time. Sure. (laughs) But it's 10 years later and I, it all worked out. So I have no regrets about that. And yeah, when I got off the plane and was sitting in the back of the taxi going to the hotel I'd booked for two nights, I definitely had a moment of what have you done? Like, (laughs) why, why, what were you thinking? Um, But I, it was the best choice I've made in my life. I regret absolutely no part of it. So I'm going to ask you that question again. What were you thinking? You didn't have a job. You bought a one-way flight um, by yourself. What was your plan when you when you got there? Like, were you going to try to pick up a job there? Did you have money saved up from before? Like, what was going through your mind? Um, I had a bit of money saved up from a summer job, um, so I had enough cushion to get started, and. I knew my mom would lend me money here and there if I got into serious trouble or would help me get back home. So I definitely had family support that could help me get back if I needed to. Um, But I just figured I had one of those 100-hour TESOL uh, certificates that so many people who come to Asia have of the backpacker teachers and things and I just figured I'd find an English teaching job somewhere. For sure. Same pathway here. Kind of landed there. Didn't really have a job lined up. Did my TESOL certificate. Um, So I definitely uh, definitely hear you there. But 10 years later, that's... um, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your 10 years in Vietnam. Yes. What... What did your days look like? Let's talk about early on because I I had no idea you had been there for so long. All this time, I thought five, six years, Mariana's been there. But 10 years, early on, what was that like? What did, what did it look like? Um, I would say back then I was definitely spending a lot more time. I was living then in the central city, so I was living in District 1, down an alleyway. I would say I was living a much more Vietnamese-style life, um, living in a a house with some other expats, young expats in an alleyway. You know, you have your little, your soup lady down the street and the smoothie lady who's in your alleyway. And um, because I was most English teachers, you don't make a, a lot of money, but for compared to a Vietnamese person, you're doing quite well. So you can, if you're living a Vietnamese style life, um, it's quite easy in the beginning. And I was only working about 20 hours a week. So I would mostly, you know, drive my motorbike around the city with some friends and stop at a little outdoor coffee shop with plastic chairs and tables by the river and stuff. So yeah, it was it was quite a a fun, happy time. A lot of beers in Boivien. 
Yep. Yeah. As that seems to be like the everyone's baptism there for the first few months is you just sit down on one of those little stools. How is Bolivia nowadays anyway? Um, to be honest, I have not been since lockdown. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure exactly what it's like now that all the backpackers are gone. It's definitely changed massively. I mean, it used to be just mostly just foreigners at small little kind of mom and pop places. And now there's huge beer clubs and nightclubs. And it's actually a lot, at least at last time I was there, there's a lot more Vietnamese than when I originally first moved here. Mm-hmm. And for those who are listening, um, when we talk about Bui Vien, we're talking about this kind of, well, it was at least when I was there. And um, certainly when you landed there, it's this kind of gritty, gritty place um, to some extent, um, really cheap beers, How, like maybe a quarter for a beer or so. Depending on there. where you went. Yes. Uh, I'd yeah. say now it's probably about, probably about a dollar to a dollar fifty sure. a beer. Yeah. And you'd have these tiny little chairs that would, you know, if the wind blew a certain way, it would crack and you'd fall over or, you know, but there was, it was a nice kind of little initiation into Vietnam. Um, And the last time I went back, I think it was about three, I want to say three years ago, I went back to get some things there and just to visit some friends and some some old students. But you're right, it has changed a lot, Um, even even then, and there are all these glitzy stores and some nightclubs and some nice coffee shops. And I don't think those stools are really as big anymore in terms of how expansive they were. I think they've kind of been pulled back a little bit. Yeah, it used to be most of the street at at night, at least. Um, yeah. But you can, still, you can still find that kind of vibe at different places. It's just a lot of it's gone more upscale and bigger. There's more yeah. money in the area. Sure. Absolutely. So that was life back then for you. But working about 20 hours a week, living with other young expats. What about now? 10 years later, what is life looking like for you? Well, um, for me, I've, I've certainly changed a lot. Um, I went back to school online. Um, as I started teaching and ended up in elementary school, I realized I really enjoyed teaching. So I went back and did my teaching certification online uh, and ended up then moving to an international school and teaching there kind of, as they say, a proper teacher. But um, I think all teaching is teaching. Uh, And eventually I also got my uh, master's of education as well, also online, still living in Vietnam. Uh, And now, thank you. Um, Now I definitely live the more upscale expat life. Um, I've moved to Tao Dien, which is the the wealthier expat district of the city. That's right. Uh, where a lot of the international schools are, the fancier international schools. So Yeah. And that's some, where your school is at too, the American school. Yes. Uh, it's in District Two. It's no longer in Tao Dien, but it is in District Two. Um, and Yes, I suppose kind of moved up the the expat ladder a little bit. Sure, the social mobility there. You're rubbing elbows with other diplomats and oil executives that happen to work there. 
we know as expats living abroad that your friends kind of come and go. And it's kind of one of the sad realities about uh, living abroad, especially someone for you who've been there for 10 years. You've had a lot of groups of friends come and go. Can you tell me, speak a little bit about more about that? Because we've had some mutual friends. Um, I know you're friends with Kian and you went to visit him not too long ago, I think, or you happened mm-hmm. to cross paths with him. Yes. Um, and he was a great guy also living in Vietnam for a few years. What's that like to have your friends come in? Um, you establish this really strong bond, this relationship with them, but there's that high likelihood that it's not very permanent. Yeah. Um, I think it's something that you get used to and you get better at over time. Obviously, if you've been friends with the same people for 25, 30 years, um, it can be really hard to imagine not, not being able to see your friends all the time. Um, but we are lucky to live in an age where we do have pretty easy communications across any amount of distance. So you know that you're not going to never see them again. And living and working as an international school teacher, we're lucky enough to not only have usually the disposable income, but also a large amount of time off. So in general, I'm, I'm able to see a lot of the people who matter most. Now, there is a lot of the friendships that come and go because you know that people are going to be coming and uh, for short periods of time and leaving again. Um, so there are people who you know eventually you're never going to see them again. And I think you just come to accept the time that you have with them and enjoy it. And then if it turns out you're never going to see them again, that's just how it is. Um, and obviously the ones who matter a bit or who stick, um, you find a way to see them and stuff. I mean, yeah, I've seen uh, Kian and, and Linda in Ireland twice uh, since since they left. So, um, yeah, you just figure out ways to see people. Let's pivot now to this community that you've kind of gotten yourself into, um, communities that kind of help support you. Because I think, if I remember correctly, Kian did rugby or mm-hmm. one of those sports there. Was that where you met him and, and that crowd? I feel like that's how I met you. I never played um, Aussie rules or rugby or Gaelic, but there was this connection um, of that community with other communities. And everywhere you go, there's this overlap of Gaelic players or rugby players or Aussie rules. Yeah, um, I actually, I think I met Kian originally through Jess and all of her um, AAS crowd, but uh, I actually met Jess through Gaelic football. So uh, it all kind of, for me, I play a lot of sports. So a lot of my social groups do come back to the sports that I play. Um, And I do think for a lot of expats, it's... um, a really great way to find connection. A lot mm-hmm. of people end up there, especially international school teachers, their social circle is really focused around their coworkers. And that can get a bit stifling if all of your friends also work with you. Um, right. 
there's a lot of great friendships to be made there too. Um, but I've always enjoyed um, the sports, how they uh, help you meet new people that you probably wouldn't have. Um, and you get to, you know, travel and go on tours for tournaments and stuff. So you get to know people very well. Um, and then you have a lot of different really interesting communities. Um, for instance, I play Gaelic football, which is um, probably a bit weird for an American to start playing in Vietnam. Um, right. But that that's really interesting because it's kind of the team has become almost a kind of home away from home community for all the Irish in the city, even the ones that don't play they have something that connects them back to um, all their fellow uh, countrymen and women. So sport, I think, does, if you, it's something that you enjoy, is a great way when you're abroad to kind of make friends and connect with others. Mm -hmm, for sure. And, I, and it's also a great opportunity for, for you to travel. Like you mentioned, you've gone to different places for tournaments. I think you've been to uh, to Bangkok. I know there are a lot of tournaments there. Cambodia. I know that some of our mutual friends have mentioned that as well. Um, so it's nice to give you that kind of extra opportunity too. But one hundred percent, I agree. It's um, for me. I always like a separation between work and play, and uh, sports has always been one thing that really allowed for that. You've also gotten involved in the Vietnamese community, or at least the the cultural side, in different ways. Um, when I was doing a little bit of research for this, I came across like an old, actually a couple of old articles that you wrote for Oi Magazine. Why did you get into writing? What was that like for you? That was back in my English teaching days. I had a fair amount of time, and a long time ago, I, I definitely. I mean. Even still today, writing is just something that I enjoy. Um, and it was definitely a path that I had wanted to just try out and see how it went. I think it's something that I would also like to get back to in the future. But the editor at OI, actually a friend of mine, suggested that I contact them if I wanted to do some writing. And the editor at OI uh, was kind enough to give me a chance. And it was exciting because to work for, um, it's quite a good magazine. I, I like their, what they write about. And I think it's a good place for people to learn about different businesses and things to see and do in the country. And they're still in production, right? They're still in operation. Yes, they are still in operation. Um, and uh, it's definitely, if you're in Vietnam, worth a read just to learn more about the country and uh, Saigon. The article that I read that stuck out for me was the one about cheese, which uh, <laughs> I thought that was one really cool because it, it spoke about a, a Quebecois man who kind of got into making his cheese here. Um, and then that connection you have to Quebec yourself going to school to, in McGill. How does this cheese compare to cheese that you've had in Montreal? It's quite good. I think that uh, cheese making is a challenge here just because of the climate. So I was very impressed with the quality of cheese. Uh, unfortunately, I he is not making cheese anymore. That's how long I've been here. Businesses come and go pretty frequently. Sure. Uh, but I was very happy to find it. And he actually was also making proper 
fresh cheese curds for poutine, which was very exciting for me having lived in uh, in Quebec. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. We're going to take a break in a little bit. But before we do that, a couple of things I want to talk to you about. You've been in Vietnam for 10 years. The changes, we've talked a little bit about that. We touched on a little bit about how friends come and go. Relationships can last, uh, of course. And, and just recently, you mentioned how businesses come and go. So you've seen quite the range of changes. Um, in my time there, I was there for almost four years, and I saw a ridiculous amount of changes. It's just incredible to see Ho Chi Minh City in, in particular develop the way it, it did. What are some notable changes for you? In terms of, I mean, there's so many that you can say. I mean, half the big buildings, actually, I'd say more than half the big high rises in the city were not built when I moved here. Even the kind of icon, most iconic one in Saigon, the Bitexco Tower, uh, wasn't completely finished when I moved here. Um, so now you just have literally hundreds of high-rise towers that weren't there. The skyline is completely different. Um, but in terms of life, um, one of my fellow long-term expat friends, uh, she described it as the, the pre-app era. So hmm. when I used to, when I first got here, even to get around in things, um, you'd use a Zeom, which is a, a motorbike taxi you ride on the back. Um, but when I got here, I would, I had, I found a guy who I trusted, who I liked, and then I just had his cell phone number and I would text him when I needed a ride somewhere. <laughs> and that was how I got around. Or if you wanted, there were very few Western places that did takeout um, or delivery. So you'd have to call them up and you'd have a, a long conversation. Um, but now it's completely different. I mean, there's an app for everything. You can get basically anything delivered to your door. If you want to take a motorbike taxi, there's Grab, which is the Uber, except that you can you can call a motorbike to take you somewhere or deliver whatever you want to someone else. Um, so I think that was kind of once things started being turned more digitally accessible through apps, that was a mm -hmm. huge change in lifestyle. And it's not just for expats. I mean, the Vietnamese use these services all the time. So I think that was a big change for everyone. Food delivery became like a big one in my time there. And I think towards the tail end for me, you started seeing Grab, you started seeing um, Uber when Uber was around. I mm -hmm. think Uber has just shut down operations in Southeast Asia or many parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah it's, it's something to something to mull over. I, I didn't really think of in terms of the technology and software side being a massive change, but you're absolutely right. It's um, It kind of goes unnoticed in a way. Yeah, it completely changed life here. I think um, it just made everything more accessible. And now the thing is, is it's um, like through Grab Food, you can order, you know, Comtam from the simple little like mom and pop Comtam place and have it delivered to your door. So it, it's it's very much altered, but also you could still get to have that kind of Vietnamese life 
Um, it just changed how you accessed it. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, we need to take a break in a little bit before we go that go on that break. Um, one thing that we I, I kind of want to do with you is I don't know if you're familiar with Sean Evans and his interviews on um, Hot Ones, where he has guests come in and they have hot wings and and he asks them questions and uh, they try to grind it yes, out. Yes, I have seen that. <laughs> one of the things that he does that I really like and I think it's um, it's quite relevant or quite quite unique for us is just looking at Instagram pics and trying to fish out the story behind that. We tend to curate our international life on Instagram. Um, people get to see a flash of this lifestyle, but they might not understand the story behind it. Um, so let's look at two Instagram posts. Do you? I want to pick one out, and I want you to pick one out. Okay. Um, I don't know if you have one in mind. I have one in mind already Okay. that I want to take a look at. I feel like you're nervous about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a... I'm not the best with Instagram. I definitely do not have the skills to live the perfect Instagram life. All right. <laughs> this is We're, one of the most popular pics I ever posted. I, I absolutely love it. Um, for people listening to the the audio show and not the video show, I'll, we'll just describe this a little bit. It looks like you and three other friends are wearing a bunch of onesies in golf carts. The location that's been geotagged is Shibuya Crossing in Tokyo. There's quite a bit of traffic behind you and these other um, commercial buildings, H&M, Uniqlo, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and your caption says, a series of fools gave me an international driving permit and let me drive a go-kart through Tokyo in a unicorn onesie. What's happening here? Tell us more about this. Um, so this actually, surprisingly, is pretty accurate for what I was doing at the time. My friend Emma and I, uh, we were going to Tokyo for actually for the Rugby World Cup. And she, mm -hmm. I think through our other friend Emily had found out that you can drive a go-kart through Tokyo. For, I do not know how it's legal, but somehow <laughs> there's a company, they have offices all over Tokyo and they have different routes that you can take. And they let you put on a, a onesie of your choice. I think they used to have like the actual Mario Kart outfits, but ran into yes. some sort of uh, copyright issues there. So now you just kind of have different generic onesies. I did debate wearing the Godzilla one, uh, but ultimately <laughs> chose the uh, Rainbow Unicorn. And then you, okay. they just guide you driving through downtown Tokyo. So that's actually at the right by the famous Shibuya Crossing. Right, the the busiest intersection, arguably, in the world, from what I understand. And what's the pace of traffic like? Are you holding up traffic? Are you keeping up with the pace? Like, uh, That's um, what I want to know, because it seems like quite edgy. You know, it's Tokyo. People are definitely going around you, but it is Japan, and people are pretty polite, respectful drivers there. Um, it's a little bit edgy at times. You get pretty close to cars and stuff. I think I was most worried about driving next to some of the nicer cars just because I was like, I don't want to be the person who drives a go-kart into a Maserati. But sure. <laughs> that would be tragic, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I definitely recommend it. You do have to get the correct form because there's actually two different international driving permits. 
I had to send away to the U.S. to AAA in the U.S. Um, I think Emma did the same for Canada. And they had to send us mm. a, a paper driving permit. They wouldn't accept any sort of plastic cards. So I don't, I don't know why. You just have to make sure you have the correct international driving permit. And then right. you can drive a go-kart through Tokyo. Well, it looks exciting. It was one of those things I had seen other people do. And like you mentioned with the Mario Kart thing, um, that looked really exciting. But it's unfortunate that that might not be available anymore. It's definitely a life goal for me. (laughs) All right. Do you have a picture that you want to share? Um, I actually, um, I had looked at some of mine. I'm not very good at, I'm a bit more private. So I wasn't really sure which one I wanted to pick. But in the end, I think I want to pick actually one that I was tagged in okay instead of one that i posted actually there's one where my friend and i are sitting in uh government quarantine in vietnam in bikinis drinking wine out of mugs and looking like we're giving each other pedicures with masks on our faces but we all look quite happy that one was definitely a good example of trying to make things look better than they were sure sure (laughs) And you mentioned that that was taken during quarantine. Yes. So let's use that to take a pause right now and take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you more about that quarantine. When I saw that story that you shared with the the quarantine in Vietnam, something just lit up and I really wanted to talk (laughs) to you more about that. So let's take a quick break and uh, we'll get back to it. All right. If you're enjoying this episode of Abroad, make sure you're hitting that subscribe button and tune in to new episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. If you currently live abroad and would like to tell your story on the show, or you know someone living abroad who has a great story and might want to share, please reach out by email, alextat at gmail.com, or Instagram DM at thisisalextat. I would love to collaborate. And now... Back to the show. So we're back for part two of this episode with Mariana. You mentioned that you and your friend were in a in quarantine. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you more about. Um, when you shared that story online and I saw it, something just kind of went off. And I really want to talk to you more about that because reading up, about Vietnam, um, uh, several articles have popped up on CNN, on Channel News Asia, on BBC, and there's one particular article, and this was written about a little over a month ago, uh, how overreaction made Vietnam a virus success. And we're not going to talk too much about the policy and decisions too too much, like or, or in depth rather, but what I guess what you experienced and a little bit of how Vietnam is kind of handling this this issue i guess maybe i should say, say a little bit about what life is like here today um because vietnam has had a completely different experience with uh coronavirus and covid than probably anywhere else in the world i mean today uh the borders are shut so anyone there are no commercial flights into the country there are some repatriation flights uh but pretty much the borders are completely shut. 
those who are allowed in have to do mandatory 14-day quarantine in a government center. There is no coronavirus in Vietnam. So we have been living pretty much a completely normal life uh, since uh, the, the end of April, basically. So restaurants are open, bars are open. Um, I've been to two soccer games in, in a stadium. Uh, sports are that, on. Yeah. So there's concerts. There's um, Life is pretty much back to normal here we can do it without any worries. Even people have kind of really stopped wearing masks in public or not stopped, hmm. but really reduced it. This being Asia, when this outbreak happened, people started wearing masks voluntarily pretty much uh, right from the beginning, way back in, in January and February. Sure. And it's pretty common to wear masks in general, right? Oh, in yeah. that part of the world. Completely normal. But We've basically gotten to the point now where you don't really have to. I always have one in my bag still kind of out of habit, I guess. Life here is basically completely normal, which I realize is very lucky compared to a lot of places in the world right now. Right. So let's rewind the clock a little bit. When this kind of, when this started developing, I mean, Vietnam shares a, a very large border with China. And the first cases kind of started cropping up around, I want to say, end of December, early January. Mm -hmm. And if I remember reading the, the article correctly, uh, one or two cases from Wuhan came to, came to Vietnam. Uh, one gentleman went to visit his son. I think that was how the story goes. And then the Lunar New Year holidays, Tet, it, um, that happened at the end of January. And from then on, Vietnam kind of did its thing. It went into, it didn't go into a national lockdown from what I understand. But what can you tell me about some of the the steps and, and actions that Vietnam took at that time? Because it was quite early on. Yeah, they really um, started planning and preparing um, in ways that probably I didn't even see at the beginning. Um, but really right away, I think uh, the government definitely, Vietnam suffered quite badly in the SARS epidemic. So I right. think that kind of primed the government to, to respond uh, very, very actively right from the beginning. So I actually went um, on Tet uh, Lunar Holidays. I went to South Africa for a friend's wedding. And mm -hmm. my last weekend there, I got an email from school that said schools were shutting down. At first, it was for a week, two weeks, then it was three weeks. Um, so we shut down schools from the 1st of February after everyone got back from Tet Holiday. And when you say shut down school, what, what did that entail for you? Because um, some schools went into shutdown, but I imagine that the school that you're working at, where you're serving more privileged students and more privileged families, shutdown looks a little bit different. Yeah, we just, we moved to e-learning. So um, that was definitely an adventure. We obviously, I think schools around the world are trying to figure this out or uh, went through this. We went to e-learning and had to figure out what that looked like. Uh, I ended up doing e-learning from the 1st of February until the end of April. And then... Uh, that's when schools actually reopened um, in May. 
but uh, we went to e-learning and there was basically in that first wave um, from China, there were about 23 cases in the country, but the government was able to contain it. And it was interesting as a foreigner because you don't always know what's going on. We started hearing kind of rumors that the the government was building, you know, um, military hospitals and quarantine centers. And originally we kind of thought, oh, this first outbreak must have been worse than the government was saying. But after that, we had about 22 days of no cases. Uh, and then what happened actually, and I, I guess they were focused on containing the outbreak from China. And I think what no one really expected was then Vietnamese started coming back from Europe and it actually came back with people who were coming back from Europe. And I think that was what nobody in the world really expected to happen because everyone kind of thought it was all coming from China. Right. For a long time, life was still pretty normal. No, we weren't working. The schools were closed, but pretty much everything business-wise was open, maybe with some more precautions. Um, and it was in, I would say, the beginning of March uh, when things started going a bit haywire with people coming back from Europe and maybe not doing the voluntary self-quarantine that they were expected. Mm -hmm. And so there started to be more cases and things started to be spreading. And that's when things got a little bit more intense. Uh, and then they got really intense for a few weeks because at that time, again, all the bars and restaurants were open. And around what month or what, when was this when things were coming back from Europe? That would be the, I'd say the beginning of March, maybe the end of February, but I, the beginning of March was when things started getting definitely more intense. Um, people started getting a lot more worried and scared. Sure. And I, I couldn't help but notice that you, you said things like thought people thought this, what was in your, in your mind, what was the level of trust in what the government had to share and the, the data that was coming out or the information that was coming out? Now I would say I, I do pretty much trust the data. Um, at the time, I think people, weren't really sure. Um, I definitely mm. wasn't completely sure. I mean, it's interesting here because it, it's completely different how information is shared compared to how it would be back home. I mean, mm -hmm. it, at times it's, um, I mean, you don't have privacy rights in the same way. So everyone, they wouldn't necessarily share people's names, but you'd have so much identifying information, uh, gender, age, location, some lists were circulating with people's passport numbers and things on them. And wow. uh, the Vietnamese kind of um, digital sphere has a lot of private sleuths who, if even if the government hasn't put out the information, eventually all of people's information gets out onto the internet about who had it. Hmm. It was interesting because there isn't always trust in the information, but I think now that we've come out the other side, it was actually fairly um, honest and complete. And that makes me think of the idea of overreaction, because in my mind, 
you know you're successful in dealing with a global pandemic or anything of this nature when people are saying there's an overreaction, right? That's kind of like the downside of it, right? People say, well, we kind of overreacted. Well, it's hindsight's hard to say. Um, what at the time, what were your coworkers or what were your friends and other members of the expat community saying? Like, were they considering leaving Vietnam? Were they considering um, staying behind? Like, what were the options that were kind of on the table for people? When it all started again, I don't think um, people were really thinking about leaving. But then um, around mid-March, um, that's when they started saying, uh, like, ending, renewing visas. Um, with schools shut down, obviously, um, a lot of the English teachers and things that worked in schools were looking at, well, how long do you think this is going to last? Because they're not going to keep paying me. Obviously, right. as, at an international school, you have more job security there. Um, so sure. as the school shutdowns lasted longer and then there was talk of not renewing visas or not being able to renew visas, that's when people started leaving or started thinking about leaving. Hmm. I would say most people really wanted to try and stay as long as they could or ride it out, out the school cl uh, closures as long as they could. Um mm -hmm. It was only really when flights started shutting down and people got worried that they might be stuck, that right. you had a, a much bigger exodus. Mm -hmm. And I think there was, there was state quarantine for individuals, and correct me if I misunderstand this, uh, for individuals or groups of people who might have come into contact with other people who um, were suspected of carrying the virus one way or another. Yeah, so and, there, um, there were really like, uh, there were really kind of two ways that the government dealt with um, people that might have come into contact um, with other people. So um, one was, it, let's say someone might have been in, a, in an apartment block, they will just lock down the entire apartment block. So people would be in their homes, but they would not be able to leave um, hmm. their apartment block, uh, the, there would be police or military outside and you were forced to stay in that apartment block. Um, for people, for instance, I don't live in a big, um, tower. I live in a smaller apartment building. Those people tend, were taken to government quarantine centers. There were a lot of them throughout, um, the country. Um, and that's where I ended up, I guess, it would be useful to explain how I ended up there. So I, now this was still when the restaurants and bars were open. Um, mm -hmm. Now that I look back on it, it might not have been the best choice because the event that got me quarantined the day it happened where I live in district two in Taudien, um, the bars were not required to be closed. So it wasn't anything that was illegal, um, but bars and rest, uh, I think it was mostly bars had been shut down in the center of the city in district one. Um, mm -hmm. So it was kind of right on the edge. We knew probably they were going to end up shutting down bars, maybe restaurants in the rest of the city very soon. So everyone kind of wanted to go out and maybe have one last big night. And it turned out that a um, pilot for an airline company here who had it, uh, he ended up being at this 
quite crowded bar. Um, mm -hmm. And so a huge number of people got dragged in basically to the quarantine system and a large number of apartment blocks in our area got uh, quarantined as well um, just from their relationship to this, this one major case or possibly a few cases that came from that situation. And when you say a huge group of people got dragged into this, um, who, who dragged you or how did they find you? Like how did they trace um, people who have come into contact and might've been present in that area at that time? Um, well, for me personally, I self-reported. I think a lot of people did self-report. Um, mm -hmm. So there was a hotline to call that basically it, it got around the, the grapevine of the area that someone had been at this um, bar. Um, it was actually, uh, I didn't find out till about four or five days afterwards that someone had mm -hmm. definitely been or had definitely tested positive. Um, but there was a hotline to call. Um, I called it. There was a lot of talk. Um, I know our principal at my school contacted me that the police had been asking for because they knew that a lot of teachers were there. The police had contacted my school um, asking for headshots of teachers to possibly check security camera footage and things. So they were definitely actively looking for anyone who might have just been in the vicinity of um, a positive case. And there were some people in my quarantine center who ended up there just by being roommates of someone who had gone to um, this bar on that night. And what were people's reactions like when this came out? Was there, um, was there some sort of backlash? Was there a lot of angst, anger directed at this particular pilot? Were they able to identify him? Like, did they out the pilot in any way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, his picture, all of his information was circulating. Um, and he's kind of had a rehabilitation because he actually was had one of the worst cases. He was hmm. probably would have died anywhere else. But um, I think wow. because it was almost a point of national pride that Vietnam has had zero coronavirus deaths. Um, he got a level of care to try and keep him alive. And I think now his image has been rehabilitated a bit, but it definitely had a, a bit of a, you know, a, a witch hunt mob mentality feel for a while. There was definitely a lot of kind of anger towards the expat community from local hmm. Vietnamese for a while. And it's completely subsided now. Um, but definitely in those days, there was quite a bit of anger towards uh, an idea of irresponsibility on the part mm -hmm. of the expat community hmm. from the local Vietnamese. And now that you brought that up, I think I saw that article also by the BBC that was kind of shared around by that. Uh, was it a British pilot? Yes. Um, yeah, that was one of the big headlines I had seen was that this pilot, or at least the article, had this tone that was propping up the Vietnamese response to the coronavirus. And it's one of the major reasons why that pilot's still alive. So similar to what you were saying, I'll have to check out the article later. Um, 
So thanks for reminding me about that. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about your personal experience. When you self-reported, you were taken into or you you went to a quarantine center that had been established all over Vietnam. Um, what was that like? What What was the process? Who else were there with you? Um, well, it was at first it was pretty nerve wracking when I found out, like before I even called the hotline, I immediately put myself in self-isolation in my apartment. And, um, so the process was kind of, uh, there was a lot of anxiety to it. I was definitely going a bit nuts because, um, you were kind of constantly hearing, oh, oh, they might come get you. They might come get you today. They might come get you tomorrow. Um, and obviously because of language barriers and I think it was a bit chaotic at first, the response, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what they were going to do with all of these people and where they were going to send them. Um, and maybe not trusting that people would self isolate properly and wanting to test people. Um, so I was kind of hearing, I spent 11 days in isolation in my apartment kind of hearing, oh, they might come get you. And then one day my building manager texted me and said, okay, um, they're coming in two hours. I I mean, I had had a bag packed by my door the whole time. So we took all of our stuff. There were about seven people in my building and the building across the street with the same building management that had been at this bar. So we all ended up going downstairs, um, expecting to go off to quarantine and instead an ambulance came and they just tested us and told us that we would probably be going to quarantine, but they didn't know uh, when or or if we were definitely going. So we all went back to our apartments and kind of sat around waiting. Um, I woke up early thinking this is going to be the day and then just kind of sat around my apartment waiting and thought, okay, if they didn't come now, they probably won't come till later in the evening. And then about 4.30 in the afternoon, I just got a knock on my door and they said, there's a bus downstairs. Um, you need to come now. And so that was a bit kind of a, a, a bit of a shock to the system because it just happened very quickly. Um, and yeah, they took us on a bus, um, a group from of people who lived in my neighborhood. And mm-hmm. they took us to what was a, I think it was a um, military university in district nine, um, basically mm-hmm. to their, uh, dorm rooms. And I ended up being basically, my floor was mostly people from my building. So actually I was, I knew most of the people on my floor in the quarantine center. So it wasn't like, um, you you guys weren't split up and kind of put in isolation or anything like that. You just put in a, a center altogether? Uh, basically, yeah. What it was, it was kind of, um, yeah, like dorms. Um, we could move around between the rooms and stuff, and we were, um, so we weren't separated or completely isolated on our own. My center was decent. I mean, it wasn't ideal. It was, obviously, there's no air con, there's no internet and stuff, so it was they hadn't had time to prepare it. So when we got in, it was quite dirty, uh, but they gave us cleaning supplies the next day. So it wasn't ideal conditions, but 
ours wasn't too bad. Uh, some of the centers, I know people were packed a lot more closely together, which would have been very worrying to me. Just, you know, you don't know who's, who's around you. And some people were in hospitals where they ended up being around a positive case, which then if you get sick, you're stuck there indefinitely. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And again, probably one of the worst parts of it was the anxiety just because they couldn't tell us any information. So originally they had told us we were going to be there a day or two until our second test came back negative. So they gave us another test and they told us when the second test came back, we could go home. And for me, that actually was how it happened. But it, I was there for eight days when originally they had told me one or two, but I actually got out early. I, uh, there were only about six of us that got a test, our test back the day that I got out. And they told all of my other friends who were still there, basically, you'll be, um, your test will come back in the morning and you'll go home in the morning. It'll be okay. And then mm -hmm. someone tested positive in our quarantine building, not on our floor, but in our building. So they kept everyone for another week. Hmm. Um, so I actually got lucky in that I only spent eight days in quarantine, whereas uh, most of the people I was taken with spent 15. And a lot of other people who were there that night spent 15 days in quarantine. Wow. I ended up having to self-isolate for another 14 days after I got back because someone tested positive in the center, but I was in my apartment. So um, I was lucky in that sense. Was there any sense of fear through this entire process of them coming to get you? Because it sounds like from your experience, like they, they were quite nurturing in some ways. There's, um, an ambulance ambulance coming to test you, giving you some heads up um, in some in some sense. But was there any level of fear or like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me at any moment? There was a lot of that. Um, I would say there's a lot of anxiety, and obviously things were quite chaotic at that point in time. They didn't know where they were taking people. They were trying to organize this response and. I think at one point there were about 70 or 75,000 people in quarantine of one type or another that they were trying to keep track of and stuff. So between the language barriers and, and kind of the chaos, there was not a lot communicated and that led to a lot of anxiety. It was more not knowing what was going to happen to you that really, um, ultimately I would say, government quarantine itself it wasn't fun but it was like bad summer camp if anything <laughs> okay. i mean you it kind of had that feel you had the the mosquito nets on your cot that you were sleeping on and stuff mm -hmm. um it was hot and sticky but i i think the the worst part about it was just the anxiety and not knowing what was going to happen to you and not having any choice or or ability to change anything so sure. and just having to do what you're told so i think that that was really hard for me and i think that was probably the hardest part for most of my friends who i've talked to did you share any of these 
these details, this experience with your family back home? Um, I shared a lot of it. Um, I think like you said in your social media and stuff, you always, um, kind of curate it and you do curate what you're telling people. And, but I, I shared most of the details. I wouldn't, it wasn't horrifying. It wasn't a horrifying experience. It's just something that you don't expect to happen to you. Um, and you don't really expect ever to be involuntarily detained. I mean, if you, if you haven't committed a crime or something, I would, yeah, I'd say the anxiety was probably the worst part and the, are they going to come knock on my door and take me away today? Well, in hindsight, would you say that you were pretty okay with the experience? Were you satisfied with how, with the strategy, the tactics that they had in handling this case? I think... Or do you feel like there might have been a, uh, an alternative method? Um, in hindsight, now seeing how we get to live um, and also thinking about what it meant for, for the local Vietnamese population, because the reason... The government kind of had to react this way because they don't have the resources and the in terms of money or in terms of the healthcare system, they they don't have the resources to take care of their people if there's a huge outbreak of the virus. So right. they made a, a very conscious choice to sacrifice the comfort of people who got sent who got quarantined for the goal of not having this virus in the country and not having um, a high death rate and not overwhelming the hospitals. And even the people who obviously did get sent to quarantine, we are all benefiting now from the fact that we have lived completely normal lives since May. And uh, not just like, restaurants and stuff are starting to reopen it's uh, we're back to completely normal life um so looking back on it now i it wasn't great but i can see why they did it and um i I can't fault the results that they've had from it interesting point when you look back to the other side of the world where you're from and the response that's happening there. What might be the message that you would want to share when it comes to handling? Um, obviously, I'm not asking for like a statement on policy yeah. or politics, but what are your feelings in what would how would what you what would you communicate to the American public or the North American public for people in Canada as well? Um, I think mostly I was really shocked by how incredibly unprepared some of the richest nations on earth were. I mean, like I said, Vietnam was stockpiling medical supplies, masks, PPE, uh, building military hospitals and quarantine centers back in January, February, as soon as this outbreak started. And I know it's partially because it is close to China, but Mm -hmm. even just simple things like in my quarantine center, It's not even a hospital. Um, They had enough um, PPE for the people who brought us our food and did our temperature checks and stuff to change in and out of full PPE 
five, six, seven times a day whenever they came into our quarantine building. So hmm. I know that they had much, they had been stockpiling these things and preparing. I, I was really shocking how poorly prepared we were and, or how poorly prepared the United States and North America were um, and kind of the lack of leadership in that department. And then I think that this really does expose, um, I know we talk about like the cultural difference between individualist societies and more communitarian societies, which is often sure. seen as like an East-West divide. Um, yep. But I think this year we've really exposed that you do need to balance the interests of the individual against the interests of the community. And mm -hmm. sometimes you do have to give up a little bit of personal liberty. I'm not saying that we should ever be sending people to government quarantine centers in the United States mm -hmm. or Canada, but there is a balance that people need to have and be responsible. And it's from here, it's very, very shocking to see how the issues of wearing a mask in public has become a political issue and some something that people are so passionately against. Right. The culture war that's going on right now is raging hard. Oh, really hard. And I, it, it's very shocking because for us, it's, it was like the fact that people were wearing masks. So just by choice, so early on in the pandemic um, in Vietnam probably did reduce um, infection rates here, which made it possible to contain the virus through um, quarantines and contact tracing. And they're still doing it. I mean, um, there was a, a false positive just yesterday or the day before here in Taodien, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be a false positive and it's all right. But just from that case, what was interesting is they had found and tested 140 people that that person had come into contact with in a day, just to mm. be sure, even though it was highly wow. unlikely that it was real. Just, it's shocking how un unprepared we were even with things like contact tracing figuring out who people have interacted with and getting them tested it's so vital to protect the people around you and right. i mean i i'm fine here but now i look back and i'm worried about my mom who's who's older and i know this isn't going away for a while it's just i guess what is most interesting is I talked earlier about the pre-app era and how I had a Zayom who I would call, who I still mm -hmm. am in contact with. I still use him to drive me around the city sometimes because we just have a great relationship. He's a really wonderful man. He still messages me maybe once or twice a week asking how my family is in America because he's scared for them. So That's amazing. Yeah, people in Vietnam, and he's not a rich guy. He he lived through the war. Um, sure. He's an older guy, and he lived through the actual war, and he's messaging me asking how my family is because people here are shocked and worried about how badly it's going in America. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting how quickly that changed because for for me... When we left Korea last year and um, 
sometime around February when I think that was when Korea had um, a big spike because of uh, that church incident and that being like a super spreader event. Um, I remember my dad messaging me and saying like, how lucky you are to leave at the right time. Like, and I was thinking at the same time, like, yeah, I guess we kind of left at the right time because that could have gotten a little bit hairy. And I spent a lot of time in Daegu with um, quite a few friends that I have there as well. <laughs> and then how quickly that changed in about three to four weeks because <laughs> now, funny enough, my dad messaged me and says, like, things are getting a little bit serious there. Please be careful. Um, everywhere else seems fine and things are going well on this side of the world or Canada seems okay. Um so yeah, people are starting to look towards the United States and giving those notes of concern, um, whereas that was not the case back in February. Definitely right? not. <laughs> That's wild. Well, Mariana, thank you so much for sharing that. That was um, incredibly insightful um, information and just really cool to hear from someone who uh, is an expat living and experiencing and also going through that quarantine process. Um Glad to hear you're okay. Well, that'll uh, do it for our show for today. Um, it was awesome talking to you. Thank you very much, Mariana. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Abroad with Alex Tat. If you've enjoyed listening to the show so far, make sure you hit subscribe and don't forget to follow me on Instagram at this is Alex Tat to find out all things related to the show and more. Abroad with Alex Tat is a one-person production so there is a lot of hard work that goes into producing each and every episode. If you would like to show some appreciation, please leave a review. Abroad really benefits from your comments and feedback, so please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and any other podcast platform available.